Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a radiation oncologist tells what cancer patients can expect when they undergo radiation therapy. What it does is that it travels in a straight line. So if you imagine being hit with a flashlight beam, it travels through you, it doesn't stay in you. It doesn't run around in your body like chemotherapy does. A pediatric infectious disease doctor explains what's happening with enterovirus infections and the rare condition that causes symptoms like those of polio. Their child appears to be weak or not able to move uh, their face or arms or limbs. And a doctor of physical medicine and rehabilitation shares a new treatment option for people with joint pain in their knee caused by osteoarthritis. It's a minimally invasive outpatient procedure that can bring non-surgical pain relief to those suffering from chronic knee pain. All that and a selection from The Healing Muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear from a pediatric infectious disease doctor about a rare condition that's showing up in some children that looks a lot like polio. Then we'll hear about an alternative to knee replacement surgery for people with painful osteoarthritis. But first, we'll talk with a radiation oncologist about what cancer patients can expect when they undergo radiation therapy. Cancer treatment often includes surgery and or chemotherapy and or radiation therapy. Today, we're going to focus on radiation therapy with Dr. Linda Schicker, an assistant professor of radiation oncology at Upstate. Thanks for being here, Dr. Schicker. Thank you, Amber. It's a pleasure. I wanted to start out by asking, is the radiation in radiation therapy, is that the same kind of radiation that can be harmful at high levels to humans? Absolutely. It is the same. So how, how do you manage working with something that can be dangerous and making it be helpful? Very carefully. <laughs> okay. And with a lot of technology and with a lot of highly trained people. Um, you know, from the staff that positions the patients, including the staff that help develop the treatment plans, the physicians, the physicists. Uh, some of our treatments that we do, every time we deliver that treatment, we have a dosimetrist or a physicist standing at the console. So it really does take a village. So it's very precise. Yes. Okay. yes. Well, let's talk about how radiation works. Um, it, it's designed to damage the cancer cells or to kill the cancer cells? Well, radiation damages just about everything that it hits. Um, so we use ionizing radiation, which is the same radiation that you get when you get a chest X-ray. Mm, okay. Ours is a little stronger. Um, and what it does is that it travels in a straight line. So if you imagine being hit with a flashlight beam, it travels through you. It doesn't stay in you. It doesn't run around in your body like chemotherapy does. But what it does do is that it is composed of little packets of energy called photons. Those photons, when they interact with matter, like the human body, they can either directly or indirectly damage the DNA strands. Now, they're not just damaging the DNA strands of cancer cells. They can also damage the DNA strands of your normal cells. So how do we manage to kill the cancer cells without actually without. killing the patient? Wow, right. Cancer cells lose their repairability. So sometimes they're killed immediately. More often, they will have breaks to that DNA strand, and they can't fix it. And after several breaks, the cell eventually dies. Depending on where the cell is in the cell cycle, it can be more sensitive to that. And chemotherapy can also make it more sensitive to that kind of damage. Regular cells are also damaged that way, but if you give a period of time, and we know that that period of time is a minimum of six hours, between, we'll call it hits of radiation therapy, normal cells can repair that damage hmm. up to a point. So you can't give too much at once, and you can't give the treatments too close together, or you kill the normal cells too. And what we're looking for is that differential kill kill the bad cells, and allow the good cells to survive. Wow. I've always heard people saying, you know, that they had to go for radiation therapy, I don't know, every day for a week or several weeks or different time periods. But that's why, right? Right. 
huh, I never realized that. So uh, is radiation therapy, is that available for all kinds of cancers, or are there particular cancers that, that respond better to radiation therapy? Well, certainly most of the solid tumors respond very well. Within any diagnostic group, some will be more sensitive than others. Um, and again, that's then where we can bring in chemotherapy to help sensitize the cells to make it more uh, capable of being damaged by the radiation therapy. Um, when we're talking about cancer, we can divide that sort of into two general groups. One is solid tumors, which is what we use radiation therapy for because it gives us a target. The other is hematologic malignancies like leukemias. That's a situation where you have cancer cells that are circulating all through your body. So that's something that is usually better addressed with chemotherapy, which follows them through the bloodstream. Oh, that makes mm -hmm. sense then. Okay. Now, are there different types of radiation therapy? Yes. To sort of make it very simple, I'm just going to divide it into two groups. One is external beam therapy. These both use ionizing radiation, but external beam therapy, the beam is developed, it is generated through a linear accelerator is what we usually use. There are a couple of other machines. But it's a, it's a big machine that makes the, the ionizing beam outside of the patient and then, if you will, aims it at the patient or shoots it toward the patient like a chest X-ray does. Oh. The other kind of radiation is something called brachytherapy. That is developed where you have a radioactive isotope, for example, cobalt. Um, by radioactive decay, it gives off ionizing radiation. The difference is, is so it's how it's developed. It's how it's generated. Radiation is radiation. These are both ionizing radiations. But when you want to treat something close, you don't want the beam to go very far. You use a brachytherapy. When you want it to travel through something, so you're trying to get a target in the middle of somebody's body, not something that's an inch away, then you use an external beam. So the brachytherapy is something you would put inside the body? It is something that you put either inside the body permanently or that you can put in temporarily with an applicator. So examples of that would be when we do a radioactive seed implant in a prostate patient, um, we put in 80 to 100 very tiny little radioactive seeds. They're little metal, tiny, tiny seeds, smaller than a piece of rice. Those are implanted into the prostate they stay there permanently. And as they, as the seeds are sitting in there, they give off radiation by radioactive decay. And eventually, they lose their radioactivity. That's one way we do it. The second way we do it, which is common with GYN patients, for example, someone that has had cervical cancer, is that we have an applicator that goes into the patient, sort of like a hollow tube. And then we have a machine that has a high dose rate source, for example, let's say cesium, that's attached to a guide wire that slides into that applicator where it dwells for a few minutes, and then it is removed. Well, I wanted to ask you, um, how, do, how do you decide how long a patient is going to get radiation therapy and how many days they have to come? How is that decided? That Does it depend been... on the type of cancer and where it's located? or All of those things go into that. But how we actually come up with our treatment protocols is with studies. And that's one of the things that's so important about having university settings and being able to accrue patients into national protocols, into clinical trials. We are always looking for the way to better our treatments with chemotherapy, with radiation therapy, with combinations, with different schedules. Is it better to treat somebody twice a day versus once a day? Sometimes it is. But the reason we know that is because we, en we enroll patients on clinical trials, and Upstate participates in a lot of those trials. Uh, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Linda Schicker. She's a radiation oncologist at Upstate. Well, let's talk about what a patient can expect during treatment. Um, when someone uh, has cancer and they're told that you know they need radiation therapy, what happens when they come? Do, do they see you directly? Initially, they'll see me for usually at least an hour where we will review all of their information, their imaging studies, their pathology. They'll have a physical exam. We'll go through their medical history. And then we'll talk about what they have and what their options are. 
there are often several treatment options, and it's important that they be able to understand what those are, and then they can make an educated decision. So So you tell them the pros and cons of each option, sort of? Absolutely. When patients come, initially their first thought is that they're going to lose their hair and they're going to be sick to their stomach. And that generally doesn't happen. If I radiate their head, yes, their hair will fall out. If I radiate their stomach, yes, they will feel nauseated, although we have great medicines now that can help prevent that. But most of the sites that we're treating aren't their head or their stomach. So they don't get the nausea. They don't get their hair falling out, which is usually their biggest concern. Mm. Radiation passes through people. It doesn't stay in them. So they're not radioactive. They don't glow in the dark. They won't think we're doing anything to them probably for a couple of weeks, just like they had a chest X-ray. You get the chest X-ray, you go home. Radiation is the same way. They don't feel it when it's happening. You can't can't feel it, see it, taste it, touch it. You won't know anything has happened. It only takes a few minutes to do the treatments. You're usually in and out of the office on a treatment day in about 15 minutes. So it's really very fast. What does happen is we sort of divide this into short and long-term effects. The short-term effects are that generally after about two weeks, sometimes a little sooner, people will notice that they get some fatigue. It won't really stop them from doing something that they want to do, but they will notice that they're a little bit more tired. And just as it takes a few weeks for that to come on, at the end of treatment, it takes a few weeks a few weeks for that to go away again. But it does go away, and they return to their normal energy level. Sometimes we get a very minimal skin change. It can turn pink, can turn a little bit tan, get a little bit of a peel. Often we don't really see any skin change at all. Treatment side effects are site-specific. If I treat your throat, you may get a little bit of a sore throat. If I treat your bladder area, your bladder may get a little bit irritable. But these tend to be temporary things. The long-term effects are something that is very important. And we always have to talk about that because that can alter somebody's treatment decision. If I tell you, if I do this, you may always have a little bit less lung capacity. That's an important thing for you to know because radiation does do damage. And some of that damage is permanent. And sometimes it doesn't take, it doesn't show up immediately. Sometimes the damage that we do shows up later. So you have to have that conversation. Can I damage your bowel? Yes, maybe I can if I'm treating you down in the pelvis because radiation only affects what it hits, for good or bad. If you have a cancer cell on the end of your nose and I'm treating your breast, it won't do anything for the cancer cell on the end of your nose. It doesn't run around in your body like chemotherapy. So for good or bad, it only affects what it hits. But you have to have those conversations with people because they have to know everything that they're signing up for. Is there anything patients can do if they're facing radiation therapy to make it go smoother? Is there a diet to follow or an exercise to do? Is there any, like, advice in general for, I don't know, preparing yourself to have the best radiation therapy experience possible? One of the biggest things is nutrition. A lot of people that are getting chemotherapy or if they are having some problems with their throat or their mouth, they may not eat well. Radiation does damage, and your body will fix that damage, but it needs the building blocks to do it. So what we know is that people that maintain a normal diet, get enough protein, they tend to do better. They tend to tolerate treatment better. They tend to heal faster afterward. Also getting a little bit of exercise. Radiation does make people a little bit tired, but what we know is that people that get a little bit of exercise every day tend to feel less fatigued. Hmm. Certainly getting rest is important. Your body has a job to do. It's trying to repair the damage that we do with radiation. Rest helps you do that. So all the things that we would normally say are good, some exercise, a balanced diet, and getting plenty of rest. Okay. Now radiation therapy um, services are, is that something that's really only available at an academic medical center like Upstate? No, and in fact, most radiation therapy is usually done in the community setting. The advantage of having a university center is that you can have treatment modalities there that are not available in the community setting. For example, Upstate has several things that we don't see in the community. We have something called Gamma Knife, which is something we use to treat brain tumors. 
We have a special machine called a Vero. I think there are only four, but we have one here in Syracuse. And it allows us to treat certain cancers more specifically. So a lot of cancers can be treated very well in the community setting. Um, We have several community offices. There are satellite offices in Oswego. We have one at the Hill Medical Building. And the newest one is in Oneida, which is where I work most of the time. So most things are treated very well there, the same way that they would be treated here. But sometimes when we need something highly specialized, then we send them to upstate. So it's good to have that as sort of available if it's needed. It's a great nearby resource for the community. As you were describing, the treatments that can be very brief, but but that you come every day for several weeks, I can only imagine it's got to be you know much more convenient to have that close to where you live. Well, especially in this part of the world where the weather isn't always cooperative. <laughs> right. Well, thank you so much for coming in and telling us about this. I appreciate it. My guest has been Upstate Radiation Oncologist, Dr. Linda Schicker. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, what you need to know about a polio-like virus called AFM on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Parents, grandparents, and others who care for children may have heard some scary news lately about uh, a polio-like disease that affects children. So we invited upstate pediatric infectious disease expert Yana Shaw to HealthLink to help us understand uh, this disease and how to protect our loved ones from it. Thank you for being here, Dr. Shaw. Good to be here, Amber. Now, it's called acute flaccid myelitis, AFM. Um, but news reports have said it's similar to polio. So what, what exactly is it? Acute flaccid myelitis is an acute illness that manifests itself with uh, weakness, uh, particularly of limbs and arms. It can also present itself as a weakness of face. And some children, in some children, the weakness progresses into paralysis. So it does look like polio. Um, we probably need to remind, I mean, what is what is polio? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so polio is um, infectious illness, is infectious conditions that used to be quite common um, before the vaccine was uh, developed. Um, it was an infection that in most uh, patients was totally asymptomatic. Essentially, most patients actually did not have any symptoms. But a small proportion of them ended up developing um paralysis of arms or limbs or um, their lungs. Um, They die from the muscle that helps you breathe would end up being paralyzed. And um, those people would end up on ventilators. Um, Many of them died. And those were long-term effects that would stay with you long after, the, or forever, right? That's that's correct, yes. This was a lasting um, uh, uh, disability, um, and people would remain paralyzed for the rest of their lives. Now, di- didn't we get rid of polio? I mean, the, the vaccine mm-hmm. came out, and uh, wait, what decade are we talking about when the vaccine was available? So we have effective vaccine initially. It was uh, oral polio uh, that many of um, the older generations may remember. It was the sweet, you know, uh, sugar-like uh, liquid that we would get, including myself. Um, since then, we have switched to injectable uh, polio uh, vaccine, and the vaccine was extremely effective effective in essentially eradicating um, polio, which means we really don't have polio in Americas. And polio has been eliminated uh, from the nearly the rest part of the world. There are still few countries um, that have uh, polio, uh, particularly because of their uh, disrupted infrastructure. Um, um, But um, 
currently there are only two countries that actually have still uh, polio. But the rest of the world is polio-free thanks to the vaccine. Um. So mostly it's gone. Mostly it's not a threat for, but people still, uh, babies are still vaccinated. Yes, we still vaccinate because the vaccine is extremely safe. And um, the risk of uh, contracting polio, although is really low, um, uh, especially in U.S. because we don't uh, see the virus circulating, it has not been eradicated worldwide. And if you were to travel to one of the two countries where they where polio is still in the in the community, mm-hmm. you'd be at risk if you weren't vaccinated, right? That's exactly the reason. Yeah. So in this case, you know, the the benefits outweigh the benefits of vaccinating outweigh the risk associated vaccinations, which are extremely low. Now, the polio vaccine does that not protect against this AFM that we're seeing? So, you know, polio vaccine does not uh, protect you against AFM because AFM is a condition. It's a neurological disease. Uh, We know what it looks like, but we really uh, don't know yet uh, what causes AFM in these recent outbreaks that we have seen since 2014. Um, You may remember in 2014, we have seen a widely circulated virus, what called, or it is called EVD-68, enterovirus 68. The virus has spread across the country and um, caused primarily uh, uh, respiratory illness. It was cold-like virus. However, what uh, physicians have all, and uh, public health uh, professionals noted that during that season, we have seen a blip of polio-like illness. And um, among those uh, who had this um, illness, a lot of them had prior respiratory illness with documented EVD-68 infection. So this EVD enterovirus might be related to this, or we don't know for sure, but it... So we, uh, it appears to be temporally associated, which means it seems that pe- children or people who contracted this infection, very small proportion of them will end up developing uh, para- uh, weakness or paralysis, this AFM. Um, however, um, CDC researchers and epidemiologists, they have looked extensively into the spinal fluids and bodily fluids of people affected with AFM. And so far, they have not been able to confirm that EVD-60A is the cause. And also, they have not been able to identify other causes of this illness. So as of today, um, we know this condition exists, and it appears to come back maybe every other other, uh, year since 2014 but we don't know its cause. So it's still a mystery. It remains a mystery, yes. Do we know who's most susceptible to it? Is it mostly children? So um, people who contracted EVD-68 were primarily children. They were um, uh, young uh, teens and um, infants, toddlers, um, school-age children. So it appears that the infection is um, symptomatic primarily in young, young people, um, possibly due to uh, lack of pre-existing immunity. Um, hmm. uh, if they have a, uh, they're otherwise healthy though. Yes, they're primarily healthy uh, children. Um, the virus um, uh, was particularly severe for children who had underlying asthma. Uh, So in 2014, uh, we had a number of children um, who had known asthma admitted to the hospital, including ICU, uh, with EVD-60, and they got very ill. Now, you mentioned how, you know, the paralysis, the weakness in the arms and legs. um, Does it start that way, or are there other symptoms? Like, how would you know that um, this is affecting your child? So the AFM appears to come on uh, rather abruptly, and uh, most parents who brought their children to the hospital have brought them to the provi- you know, physician's attention rather um, 
quickly. Uh, so the disease itself uh, doesn't have any really special warning signs that would help you um, decide, okay, I need to go right away. Um, this is what's happening. Um, uh, however, parents are typically very good about noticing if their child appears to be weak or not able to move uh, their face or arms or limbs. They tend to bring children uh, to the doctors very quickly, and those would be reasons why you would want them to bring their child to a doctor. Um, when you describe the symptoms, if I saw that in an you know an older person, I would be thinking of, you know stroke mm-hmm. with weakness and particularly in the face and all, but um, in a child, you would, I mean, mystifying, it sounds sounds like you wouldn't know what, you know, what was going on. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Uh, I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Yana Shaw, an associate professor of pediatrics specializing in infectious disease. And we're talking about um, a polio-like disease that's affecting some children. It's called acute flaccid myelitis, or AFM. Um, do we have an idea of how many kids are affected in, in New York State or nationally? How big of an issue is this? Um, so yeah, every year uh, CDC reports the number of cases of um, AFM because it is a condition that um, providers are required to, to report. And um, this year so far have, there have been over 200 cases reported um, as of this week, 80 of them were confirmed as true AFM. Uh, the number continues to evolve as states um, report uh, new suspected cases. CDC then uh, takes uh, the information and investigates um, uh, those neurological illnesses further to confirm or, or rule out AFM. Does it seem to peak in August and September? Roughly, or? Uh, yes, um, it does. Uh, so enterovirus um, or enteroviruses are a group of uh, family that circulates during summer and early fall. So it's not surprising that we see EVD 68 activity to um, take up uh, in uh, August and September. And similarly, the AFM has followed the same pattern. Can you talk to me about how AFM is treated, or first of all, how it's diagnosed? If someone arrives at the hospital with a child that has these weakness uh, that came on suddenly, what's done for them? So um, in terms of treatment, um, the condition um, itself is difficult to treat um, because, uh, thankfully, um, there have not been tremendous amount of cases um, uh, we really don't have any uh, single effective treatment available for this condition. Numerous centers, um, including ours, have tried a variety of different treatment approaches, uh, suppressive you know, therapy, immunoglobulin replacement, steroids, um, supportive treatment alone, um, but there is no um, specific uh, medication or drug that we can give patients uh, to help them heal um, faster. Is it a, a reason to be hospitalized, though, or, or do they go home? Uh, so most of children, uh, most of the children who present with AFM uh, are hospitalized uh, because it's a condition that's uh, rather complicated, requires specialists. Infectious diseases, like myself, are involved. Uh, neurologists are involved in the care. Hospitalists who help us to support those children. Intensive care unit specialists who help children breathe and support their, you know, hydration when needed. So, this condition requires multidisciplinary uh, team approach uh, that's only available um, in tertiary care hospital like ours. Okay. And is it, um, do you have to have a blood test to diagnose it? Mm -hmm. So we do blood work and we do also imaging. Uh, We do a variety of different also neurological testing for those children. And um, the reason uh, being is first we want to rule out conditions that we know that cause this type of illness uh, in hope that we could treat it with drugs that we have. 
Um, um, but also we need those diagnostics to confirm uh, the condition because you were asking how is it diagnosed. And AFM is primarily clinical diagnosis, but it also require MRI, which is magnetic resonance imaging findings um, in a spinal cord or brainstem. Is it contagious? Uh, we don't believe it's contagious. So no. a parent wouldn't be at risk of getting it from their child, or a caregiver wouldn't mm -hmm. necessarily be at risk of getting it? So far, all the information we have, and this has been extensively studied, this is not contagious, and caregivers or siblings or household contacts are not at risk. So I want to ask about residual damage, and I, I didn't realize um, we've got some cases from back at 2014. How are those patients doing? Mm -hmm. Do they still have paralysis or weakness, or do so, you recover from mm -hmm. this? Yeah, so sadly, most of the children do not recover. So the prognosis is not good, and it really appears like polio. Many of them will um, remain either weak or will remain paralyzed for um, a long time to come. Um, you know, however, I should say we do not uh, prospectively follow those children, so I personally don't have, you know, information for you um, on all of those children that we have seen uh, here at Upstate. So for sure there's going to be a variation in the degree of recovery, but based on the current literature and data that's available, the prognosis in general is poor. So right now it's a poor prognosis. Mm -hmm. Well, um, what advice do you have for families and how to protect their children from this? Mm. Well, the best uh, strategy is to protect yourself from infection. If this is a, um, you know, infectious conditions, hand washing alone is extremely efficient in um, preventing contracting uh, viruses that can cause this type of illness. And then um, whenever ill, stay away from, from crowds. If there are people who are sick around you, um, try to stay away from them as well. Um, so the sort of normal um, advice for mm -hmm. protecting against flu even, right, would apply to this as well? That w yes, the same recommendations and advice would apply. And so far there's not a vaccine, though, that will help guard against AFM. We don't have vaccine. Until we know exactly what's causing this condition, we will not be able to move forward, either with developing uh, medications or developing a vaccine. Well, this is good information, important information, and I appreciate you being here to share it. My guest has been uh, pediatric infectious disease expert, Dr. Yana Shaw. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, a physiatrist explains a new way to treat osteoarthritis of the knee. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. State Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. One of the most common diseases of advancing age is chronic knee osteoarthritis, a condition which can cause pain and stiffness. Dr. Shali Dong, an assistant professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation who specializes in musculoskeletal pain management, is with me in the HealthLink on Air studio today to talk about this condition. Thank you for being here, Dr. Dong. Thank you for having me. So is osteoarthritis in the knees, is this something that everyone is going to develop if they live long enough? I think it's a fair statement. Um, those osteoarthritis is a degenerative changes of the joints. It's caused by the damage and breakdown of cartilage between bones. Sometimes when we look at the patient's x-ray, such as knee x-ray, we talk about some bone-on-bone -bone picture. So that means the 
cartilage between the bones is very thin because of wear and tear. So the cartilage is sort of a cushion? It's a cushion between the bones. Okay, and then over time it sort of wears down? Yeah, it's... Okay. So what are the symptoms um, that would tell a person that maybe they've got osteoarthritis? What would they feel or experience? Uh, the usually this osteoarthritis can cause the patient's pain, stiffness. Like just in the joint area, or does the pain go places? Um, the pain rarely go to places, but sometimes they can re have the referred pain to some other places in the body. But most likely, we will focus on the joints per se, and they will have the pain. That's a major uh, complaint from patients with osteoarthritis, and uh, stiffness, uh, hard to walk hard to walk, uh, swelling, um, and... So it really can impact their life, their ability to get around or Absolutely. exercise or any... Okay. Absolutely. Now, is this... Um, we've talked about it's de degenerative, so you see it mostly in older people, but how, how young would someone maybe develop this? Uh, for osteoarthritis per se, I would say, surprisingly, uh, just within the last few days, I saw quite a some younger patients, age 30 to 40, have already have this advanced osteoarthritis already. Um, so, you know, I think the aging is actually getting younger uh, than we expected. Wow. Well, is there anything people can do to protect their joints from getting osteoarthritis? I would say um, maintain a healthy weight, exercise will be the best way to go. Okay. Okay. And then um, you mentioned, is it images that you take? Do you take x-rays to see whether, you, you said bone on bone. Is that, is you, do you see that through an x-ray? X-ray is a standard image study we do for the patient with uh, uh, knee pain. Uh, we can also do MRI or CT if we suspect some soft tissue or other meniscus uh, um, pathology. Now we mentioned knees, but does osteoarthritis show up in... I don't know, ankles and shoulders and other joints, or is it mostly knees? Uh, osteoarthritis can affect every joint in your body, in our body. Uh, so it definitely can affect uh, many joints in the body. Uh, but uh, the uh, concern, a lot of people complain about knee pain because we use a knee every day. We walk, we stand up. Uh, so we use the knee uh, every day. So a lot of people complain about the knee pain. As a matter of fact, the chronic painful knee osteoarthritis is actually a major cause of uh, disability in our older adults. Oh, I bet. I bet. All right. Uh, now, do you track? Uh, is, there, like, is there a degree of osteoarthritis? Do you track it if someone comes in and they're having a little bit of pain? Do you... Um, watch and are you able to see it get worse over time? Um, yes. Um, from the x-ray, there's a grade, uh, grade one, grade two, grade three, grade four, that we can uh, grade patients' uh, osteoarthritis, the severity of the osteoarthritis based on the x-ray. However, we don't treat patient through the x-ray. We treat patient by the person. By what they're as, experiencing. As a person. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Sometimes the x-ray may show kind of moderate osteoarthritis, but patients have significant pain and significantly limit their uh, activity level. Uh, we also want to treat the patient earlier so that they can maintain their activity level. Well, I want to get into the treatment options for this, but let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Uh, I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Assistant Professor of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, Dr. Shali Dong, and the topic is osteoarthritis. So we hear about people who end up, you know, getting a knee, knee joint replacement, but are there other things, other options for people before they get to that point or maybe can avoid surgery altogether? Uh, managing this knee osteoarthritis can be a challenge. So the traditional conservative treatment for chronic knee osteoarthritis include uh, we call non-steroid anti-inflammatory medications, also called NSAIDs. Wait, uh, non-steroidal, that's like Motrin? Motrin, Aleve, yeah, um, those medications. Okay. And uh, we also can also include steroid injections. And uh, sometimes uh, 
providers also use opioid uh, for the treatment of the pain. We've heard about the opioid use and uh, and then and steroid injections. Yes. Um, what about physical therapy? Is that ever Physical offered? therapy is also a standard treatment for the knee osteoarthritis. Okay. Now, do these things, that we, we, the medications, do they work? Well, the medications, uh, they work uh, sometimes, initially especially. Uh, so the medication uh, may be a daily regimen. Uh, and also, they provide some short-term pain relief. Also, uh, especially for those medications like opioids, they come with risks, which include opioid abuse or dependence. Um, and there's some people that don't want to take opioids because of that, or can't for, because of that, the, the risk of addiction. That's right. Um, and then, you know, steroid injections and um, NSAIDs, they may also have, there may be patients that aren't able to take those as well. There's always some side effects for the NSAIDs and also steroid injections. And also steroid injections, they provide months pain relief. They may need to repeat several times per year. Uh, another thing I want to mention is that uh, even for the surgery, like uh, knee replacement surgery, it's not option for everyone. Uh, they have their indications. Uh, so actually, there's a study show that the average patient with chronic knee pain wait about average nine years until they are ready or qualify for surgery. Um, so people, patient can, you know, not everyone is a surgical candidate because of their BMI, also called body mass index, because of their age, because, because of their comorbidities. And, uh, their other health issues. Yeah, their other health issues, or sometimes lacking of the supporting system. All right, so that's a good point, that surgery isn't an option for everyone. Mm -hmm. um, but that you mentioned a nine years. People on average wait nine years before they go through with the surgery, so people are sort of tolerating this, it sounds like, or trying to, they are trying as to long tolerate. as they can. Yes, they are trying to tolerate the pain as much as they can until they get to the point uh, they can be qualified for the surgery or um, can be the proper candidate for the surgery. Well, I know that you're offering something new, um, a, an alternative to these things, and I wanted to hear more about it. So what is, uh, what is the Cool Leaf knee-cooled radiofrequency treatment. Yeah, the procedure I want to introduce today to the central New York uh, people are called cooled radiofrequency genicular nerve treatment, also known as cool leaf. And it's a minimally invasive outpatient procedure that can bring non-surgical pain relief to those suffering from chronic knee pain. Uh, the pro procedure uses radiofrequency energy to deactivate the nerves responsible for sending pain signals to our brain. Uh, it is also the first and only thermal radiofrequency treatment cleared by the FDA to relieve chronic, moderate to severe knee pain caused by osteoarthritis. Huh. So how does this work? Uh, so this procedure targets genicular nerves. The genicular nerves are the nerves carry the pain signal from the knee joint to the brain. A radiofrequency generator transmits a small current of radiofrequency energy to thermally deactivate the genicular nerves. And are those nerves like right in the knee area? It's uh, surrounding the knee joint. Okay. So do you make, uh, is there an incision, or how do, you, how do you get to the nerve? There's no incision. That's the benefits of this procedure. Uh, so we get to the nerve uh, under the fluoroscopic guidance. So does the patient come in, um, are they awake during the procedure? Most of them, yeah, they are awake during the procedure. We can give them conscious sedation to make them uh, kind of numb the pain. We use local anesthetic to numb the pain. We also can use conscious sedation to make patients feel less pain during the procedure. Okay, all right. And how long does it take, the procedure? The procedure takes less than one hour. Uh, depends on the time, you know, depends on the treatment the patient will need, but usually less than one hour. And do, what does it feel like to the patient? Do, do, they, do they have any sensation when you're working? We will use local anesthetic to numb the skin area and also numb the tissue. 
so the patient will feel minimal discomfort during the procedure. However, it's still a needle. I would not say it's going to be 100% pain-free. Okay. So there is a little bit of, uh, you can feel the needle a little bit. Yes. So um, what are the risks of this procedure? Like any procedure, uh, you know, the risk of associated with the procedure can include bleeding, infection, injury with surrounding organs, and sometimes worsening of the pain. So that's why before we do this radiofrequency treatment of the genicular nerves, we do two times nerve block. We, under uh, fluoroscope guidance, and also use local anesthetic, uh, we will targeting the nerves using the local anesthetic medication and trying to uh, do the nerve block first before we proceed to the uh, radiofrequency uh, treatment. Okay, so to make sure that the nerve block is effective before you proceed. That's right. Uh, so we will consider the test to be successful if the patient experiences over 50% pain relief for over 24 hours following the nerve block. Okay. Now, who is the ideal patient for this procedure? I would say the ideal patient for this procedure is uh, for those people who suffered from chronic osteoarthritis-related pain, and yet surgery is not option due to medical reasons. Okay. And is there any uh, type of patient that would not be a candidate for this procedure? Uh, the contraindication for this procedure is very rare. Uh, I would say if patients have significant cardiovascular complications and uh, have uh, anticoagulation uh, or some other se severe COPD, uh, theirs can be considered kind of relative contraindication, but they should talk with us, get a consultation first to see if they are still able to get the procedure. Well, let's talk about results. How do the results of this cool leaf procedure compare with, say, medications or, or surgery? Uh, so this procedure got FDA approval based on a uh, study comparison study between the radiofrequency treatment to intraarticular steroid injection. Uh, so in that study, uh, they found that at six months, cool radiofrequency provided significantly greater and longer lasting pain relief, improved physical function, and higher patient satisfaction than the intraarticular steroid injection. Compared to surgery, I would say this procedure, the cooled radiofrequency treatment procedure, also called, called, known as cool leaf, is a minimally invasive outpatient procedure. There does not require incision. Uh, it's not a surgery. Patient can go back to uh, go back home shortly after the procedure, and they recover very soon after procedure. And the procedure is supposed to last uh, up to twelve months of pain. Last, give the patient up to 12 months of pain relief. So up to a year of relief. Up to, a, up to 12 months of pain relief. Now, if you have the cool leaf, does that mean, I mean, years later you might still be a surgical candidate or, or not? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, actually, the benefits of this cool radiofrequency treatment or cool leaf is that the patient can function without pain. Uh, then they can work on, on the exercises, on losing weight, or actually they can be qualified if they are not a surgical candidate before because of their high BMI. By uh, exercising, by losing weight, they can actually become the candidate for the surgery. Oh, that's good to know. Yes. Well, I want to make sure our listeners have the phone number for more information. It's 315-464-1569. Uh, and we'll also have that on our website as well. I want to thank you for being here to share this information. My guest has been Dr. Shali Dong, an assistant professor of physical medicine and rehabilitation at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
Beverly Boyd is co-author of the poetry collection Where Our Palms Rest, available from Coalesce Press. She has new poems forthcoming in Illiston Press and Slant. Her poem, Tis New to Me, reminds us to hold on to the awe we often have when first recovering our health. The poem begins with an epigraph from The Tempest. How many goodly creatures are there here, O brave new world! With blinds open, morning lights awash in violet, lawns and houses freshly dipped as in a tub of dye. Across the bay, a sailboat glides in mauve. Midday, hazy sunlights drained the violet. I watch a sparrow survey his golden world. His mate hops to a lower branch, looks up, flies past to a higher limb. Together, they abandon Brazilian pepper boughs tipped with buds, bees a buzz. Nearby, ballooning spiders hurl streaks of silver into the sky, electric in light and breeze, while flies ascend invisible ladders, reaching through the silken spider threads, blown up to second-story trees. Inside, as if at war with gloom, lightsabers brandish their light, no heat, from the temporal side of my corrected eye. Later, Light flickers like firing fluorescent tubes until the pulses slow as I absorb today's extremes so I may see these tints again when habit replaces awe. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, how to achieve health equity. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.